What an amazing, probably, if I had to guess, one of the most famous hymns of all time, Amazing Grace. And no matter what tech issues we have, that song resounds in our hearts, and tech is great until it doesn't work, but that that grace will lead us home. Like I said, this is one of two more sermons we have in the book of Hebrews. We have this week, and then we have next week, uh, because Advent starts later than normal this year. It starts in December. Usually, it'll be, it, sh- it would be normally next weekend. But I was told once of a story at this church, uh, and I don't remember the name, and I don't want to say it uh, to get it wrong, but that years and years and years ago, there was a child that was misbehaving in the church. And as the parent was bringing them to the back of church, they yelled out for all to hear, pray for me, because they knew that they were going to be disciplined in some way, shape, or form uh, when they got out of the sanctuary, okay? Um, Now, if that were to ever happen here, that would be amazing, um, because it's just hilarious of the understanding that a child really knows when discipline is coming. And that's another reason why we understand that we as children, right, though we are called to have faith like a child, which is unquestioning, right, that is a faith that is assured that mom and dad love us, that as we, though uh, we, as we are younger and we get disciplined, we still want to make sure that mom and dad are there, uh, that we may have a child that when you go out, uh, maybe on a date night or on a vacation, they want to know when you're going to be back to the minute or the day uh, of when you're going to be back, and that there's a comfort in our parents, even though they might be disciplinarians. Now, I understand that me saying that not everybody here had that, and that not everybody, when they think back about their relationship with their mom and dad, is a positive one. And so I don't want to continue with that sermon illustration, knowing that for some of you that might bring pain, the discipline in your life has happened nonetheless. Though, like the child that understands whatever kind of beating that child was going to get, he wanted the church to pray for them, there's an understanding of discipline in the Bible that really starts from the very, very beginning. If we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, I would think that after the fall, when Adam and Eve bit the apple and sin entered the world, that God was pretty upset, that God disciplined, and he did that via a curse, Right, that, that he cursed the ground, all of those things, that the fall happened, sin now had entered the world, that there is something now in our DNA, there's something in Hudson, there's something in Addison that wants to always fight against discipline, that wants to fight against a father or a mother or a parent who disciplines them. And even like us, when we were kids... We didn't like to be disciplined. I don't know anybody that was like, no, I enjoyed being disciplined by my parents. That discipline is hard, but it's, an, it's a principle and really an attribute in the scriptures that we see from the very beginning. Our confessions even speak about it. Now, our confessions that we hold the three forms of unity here in the church, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, the Canons of Dort. These are historical writings that are there to help us understand God's word. That as a Christian Reformed Church, we hold to those. That myself included, none of us are endowed with all wisdom of all things in the Bible. That there were people before us that had deep, amazing thoughts of how to make sense of the scriptures. And so we look at uh, Article 32 in the the 
the Belgian Confession this morning. We've been in the Heidelberg a lot in, and the Canons of Dort, the sermon series. But the Belgian Confession, Article 32, says, We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviation from what Christ, our only master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciousness in any way. We also accept whatever is the, it is proper to maintain harmony and unity to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, excommunication with all it involves, according to the word of God, is required. So you can leave that, leave that uh, that's a really harsh last paragraph. But when we talk about discipline in the church, it is there for order, that God is a God of order, right? That we as a church, we, we order ourselves in the way of Jesus. And that if any of us it, it deviate from that without repentance, that's key, that discipline ought to be enacted. Just like we are to be disciplined as children by our parents, and even as adults, we break a rule, there are consequences, right? There are, there are times that we as adults get disciplined. Does it look different? Sure. Does it feel different? Sure. But the same thing is happening. We are being corrected in life. The church has the obligation, and in some ways the honor, though that's a weird way of saying it, to discipline those that deviate from the truth. Because it's a truth that as a Christian Reformed church, and a, a, what I would call a church of God, a true church, the Belgian Confession also talks about that. That there are three tenets of the true church. The pure preaching of the gospel, right? The pure administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. That church discipline is being used in a godly, God-honoring, biblical way. It's not a three-strike rule and you're out. It's not you mess up and you're gone. No, it's an understanding that there is grace, a grace that is greater than all of our sin. The church should reflect that as well. However, the church should also correct. The church should also maintain unity. Now, are we all, each and every person, going to agree 100% on everything in the Bible? No, we're not. Hopefully we agree on the, what I would call the essentials of the faith, faith, Christ, Christ crucified and was raised from the dead, that it's in Christ that we are saved, that is the most important thing, but there are other theological things as well that I hope we have agreement on, things that are necessary for the faith, and when that's not there, that discipline and accountability have to happen. This isn't an easy topic. It's not super comfortable to preach up here on the stage, especially as a sinner. And so these are the journeys of discipline that we see in the book of Hebrews. And I find it interesting, I actually find it fascinating that in a book that's telling us Jesus is better than everything, Jesus is supreme over everything, he is the best, he is simply irresistible in life, that following Jesus is the greatest thing you could ever do in your life, he's ending with discipline. This is after the faith sections. So he wants us to have defined what faith is, right? 
It is the belief in what we cannot see, the assurance that God is there, that we have new life in Christ, though we are tempted and attacked day in and day out, that God is with us. Then he even goes on last week and says, we're surrounded by those that have gone in the faith. We can look to Moses. We can look to Elijah. We can look to David, to all of these people in Scripture. But our ultimate view should be Jesus, the author and perfecter, the artist of your faith is Jesus. And what I love it, what I love about that is he doesn't paint with the same brush for all of us. That I could sit with, I don't know, 250 people here, you've all come to faith differently. But I find it fascinating, it's faith in Christ alone. That if there is another entity, another person, another belief that you're putting on par with Jesus, then you can't say that. You can't say that you have faith in Christ alone if you put something else, an ideology, a, a political system, a, a other belief, a world religion, with that. Right? We, we believe that you can't say that I believe in Jesus, but I'm a Buddhist. Right? That doesn't make sense that we understand that in Christ alone our hope is found, our, our definition is given, that there is a difference. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. If you think you are, then you're putting yourself on the same level as Jesus. It's a real dangerous place to be. But we know in time and in life we may be tempted to do that. For some of you, you may be in there right now. Your love for a certain potential sin is on par with Jesus. And pastor, what do you mean by that? That you engage that sin week in and week out more than you engage Jesus, right? If, if all of a sudden, you know, and how do I kind of understand that analogy? If, you know, my wife Carrie and I, if I went a week without talking to her, actually you may like that. So if I go a month without talking to her, and she's going to want to know, well, then who are you talking with? I know you need to talk. Babe, you talk to the wall. Like, I, what else have you given this affection for talking to? That at some point, my, I'm desiring to talk to this or do this or whatever this is on par with my wife. And all of us will say, that's completely messed up. That is not right. Yet we do that with faith, and we do that with Jesus all too often. Our ideology, our sense of identity, ourselves, we can put on par with Jesus to the point where we may even say, well, I'm going to actually put that, because I believe this, I'm going to, Jesus, you have to believe in me like this. That any, any stance you're going to have over Jesus is not a stance, not a Christian stance, just like we say a Christian stance is not to have a stance over anybody else, but to come alongside them in life. To come alongside them in unity, even in discipline. Now, we see there's that, that, that uh, statement of excommunication, and that's a scary word. Friends, that is a process, right? No elder in a church, well, you know what? I'm just going to speak for our church. No elder in this church is going to look at, we, A, we don't take attendance, but if so-and-so is not at church on a Sunday... They don't come to me or they don't come to the rest of the elders and go, it's time to excommunicate. We don't do that. 
that excommunication in Matthew 18, Jesus makes it very clear there needs to be a process of offering repentance and forgiveness to make relationship with an erring erring way of somebody, a deviation of the gospel. And I love how the Belgian Confession uses that word deviate, that there's a deviation. A deviation isn't Ooh, I, I accidentally did that, or oh man, that was a, I, I just completely messed up and I fell that way. A deviation is a premeditated thing that we are going to go away from the truth. That if there's someone in the church that is trying to bring people away from the truth of God, that that is a deviation. And it doesn't mean, and you're done. No. That there is a process of walking alongside them, of correcting them. And yes, I understand that that puts the elders and myself in a very high position. But that is our governance structure. They're sinners just like I am, just like you are. But that we are called to hold each other accountable for when we deviate. Because it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, if you're new, we read from the ESV, but you have whatever uh, translation of the Bible you might have on your phone or with you. Starting with verse 12, we're going to go 12 through 14. Again, this is after he is saying, do not despise the Lord's discipline because the Lord chides or disciplines those that he loves. I use the example of my boys. I discipline them because I love them. Now, they may not feel that way, right? Do you guys feel that way all the time? No. And I'm sure if you asked your kids, they would say the same thing. But we discipline because we love. We see an error or a deviation in some way, right? Like we learned this past week, you don't throw a poop bag on the roof and then tell nobody that it's up there. Now, you, you don't even know my kids, but you're looking right at them. And I appreciate that. I do, yeah. Went up on the roof today, found a poop bag. How did that get there, right? I had one of my sons say, I tried to throw it over the house. That's not a thing, right? How many people, is that a thing in your house? Like, we're going to try to throw poop bags over the house and see what sticks. No, that's disgusting, right? So we learn, we correct. That one's fairly easy. Hey, don't do that, right? Not okay. But whatever that is, whatever the deviation from what your and your spouse or your family agrees upon that is, <laughs> that is right in the society... Right? You want to correct that. You can go to like law and justice and all of that. Now again, I understand that we all may feel different things about different laws being put in place, but the laws are there to help correct. Right? You're doing 80 in a school zone and you get a pretty hefty ticket. Please don't come to me and go, this is not right. You're doing 80 in a school zone. At least do it on Ridge, not a school zone. You know, I, you will find no compassion from me if you get pulled over doing 80 in a school zone. But the police officer has every right to correct you and say, don't do that. That correction and discipline in life is what the writer of Hebrews brings up in the beginning of chapter 12. He continues with verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths, straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
So he's continuing, this writer is continuing with this understanding that discipline is put in place as a mature believer to make things right. But what this says is that discipline should strengthen you. Though in the moment you may feel weak, right? On my side, my mom's side of the family, my papa didn't slap with his hand. He, he hit with his belt, right? And I was a frequent recipient of that form of discipline. Now, you get hit once with a belt, and you're thinking, why would I ever do that again? Like, nothing about that felt good. And I would love to be able to give testimony that Papa only had to do it once, but that's not true. Or, and you all, and maybe you remember my grandma, right? Grandma Bonnie Wells, my mom's mom, right, who I get my glorious height from is she's, she died at 4'8". Uh, five sevens tall to 4'8", Rick. Don't look at me like that. She was a ninja when it came to discipline, right? The two times that I remember vividly being disciplined is when we were at the table and my elbows were on the table and then out of nowhere what seemed like a samurai sword, it was only her fork, was jabbed into my elbow. Grandma, what in the world? No elbows on the table. Grandma, words work, right? But she understood me and understood that maybe a little poke in the elbow would get the point across. And then I will remember, and a lot of you will remember this as well. I remember in junior high, I would say that in junior high, the the verbal disrespect in my mouth was probably somewhat at an all-time high. And I remember I said something sarcastic to my grandma as I'm standing over her at 5'7", because I haven't grown since junior high, at least vertically. All of a sudden, my mouth's hurting. That without me even seeing it, she whacked this part of my mouth, this upper lip. And it's so fast that I really didn't even see it coming. And I looked at her and I said, Grandma, what did you do that for? And she looked at me dead up and said, because it won't leave a mark. You say that in 2023. Where's grandma going? To jail. But that was her form of discipline. And she's doing it to correct that you don't sass your grandma. Now, again, grandma words work, but she chose that form of discipline. It strengthened me. Right? It's the people we know in life that when they get disciplined, they just flop on the floor. They think it's the worst thing ever. Right? I don't know if you guys ever saw the, the video or the meme of there's a dog chewing, uh, I think it's a bone, on a couch and it falls off. And the, the, it's so funny. The dog looks at the bone and just falls backwards. Super dramatic. Like, I cannot believe this bone fell on the floor. That's not what discipline's supposed to be. We're not supposed to wallow in discipline and go, woe is me. The writer of of Hebrews is saying, no, it strengthens your legs, it strengthens your arms, it strengthens your person. Because regardless of your discipline, you have a job to do. Right? You may always joke that if you get in early uh, on a Monday morning to work and something bad happens, you're like, I just want to quit today. No, grow up. 
that sometimes things happen, we get, we get disciplined, and we are to continue moving on. We don't, oh, we're disciplined, so that's it. I'm going back to bed. No, it's there to strengthen us because we still have a job to do. I think of the manufacturer, right, who's on the line in a factory. They do something wrong, and they get disciplined for it. Maybe they get written up, verbal warning or whatever, and they go, that's it, I'm out. No, the cars still have to get made. There's still a job to do. Discipline does not destroy your life. Discipline strengthens your life. Now, maybe you've had this moment where as you got older, you've reflected on your relationship with your mom or your dad or whoever was kind of the disciplinarian in your family. And one day you went to them and just said, thank you. I know I was a handful. Hopefully you don't wait until that person's gone. But you have that, that connection moment that you recognize that the discipline you had in your life worked, at least in some way, because you stopped doing that thing. You stopped making that mistake. You grew up and you grew out of it. That is part of this discipline process of faith. That, believe me, the Lord is everlasting and everlasting, and the Lord plays the long game with you as he does with me. He is willing to discipline you about the same thing over and over and over again, but I guess the question I would ask then is, you're the common denominator. What are you going to do differently? As a dog returns to his vomit, so we return to our sin. That if we're being corrected about something, we should really be mature enough to look inward and go, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Yet for some of us, that's hard. Because the other thing that discipline does, discipline exposes. That when we are disciplined, when we're called out, when we're held accountable, when we didn't make the right choice or we hurt somebody or whatever, discipline can expose the sin in our life. It strengthens us, but it also exposes. Verse 15. Starts with, see to it. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that, uh, that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. We go back to Jacob and Esau. That there is, you know, there are problems on both sides. Jacob, he tricks his mom, right? He tricks the understanding of, uh, of his parents, and he steals Esau's blessing. That Esau, for a mere thing of soup, gives his birthright and his blessing away. Talk about a giant wah-wah in, uh, in Esau's life. I guarantee he probably would have wanted that back. And maybe you've been there in life. Maybe you've given away a part of yourself. Maybe you've made decisions that has completely changed your course of life in your mind. And maybe you're sitting here weeks, days, weeks, months, years later, and you go, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You guys all know the saying, woulda, yep, woulda, coulda, shoulda. We look back and we go, man, I should have done that. 
I could have done something different. And this is different than thinking you could make it in baseball or whatever it was. These are decisions that change the course of your life because of maybe a mistake you made or something you chose to do. And you go back and you go, ugh. But the mature believer doesn't go back and go, ugh. The mature believer goes back and goes, man, but God still found me. God's still there. God, God did not give up on me. God did not say, and you're out. That God still not only desires a relationship with you, but he wants to guide your life. God is the number one person in the world that could say to each and every one of us, told you so, but he doesn't. That's grace. He doesn't give us what we do deserve, wrath, death, but he gives us grace when we don't deserve it. None of us have earned it. None of us has gone to church as much to earn his grace. All of you that are going to sign up for nursery and actually do it, you're not going to earn, uh, earn the grace of God. He gives it to you so you can say, oh, I did sign up a year ago. I forgot that I did. Or whatever it is. That he's correcting that in your life. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. And there he makes it actually very specific he knows that in our society sexual sin and sexual immorality is going to run rampant i think he's right we look at 2023 and it is all over the place that god understands that that is going to be something that his followers and his people fall in time and time again in a myriad of sins right and understanding that he's saying stop come back to me this is what my desire is for you and understanding that forgiveness. But it's one thing to understand the forgiveness. It's another thing to correct the behavior. God, I get it, but I still want to do it. Oh, but I know that the hundredth time I do it, you'll forgive me that too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls that cheap grace. We talked about that um, uh, weeks ago. That's probably an ideology that's going to sting of a false conversion. That if you think God is just this immoral or moral ATM machine that I'm going to step into sin, but I'm going to get grace, so I keep stepping into sin, so I'm going to get grace, that is a very ugly understanding of Jesus, of the grace he actually affords you, that he went to the cross to die and then perfect it in you. That's not a perfected faith. That's taking advantage of faith. And so we understand, see, it was a good idea. We understand that not only does this strengthen us when we get disciplined, it exposes our need for discipline, especially for all those that think we can hide our sin from God. Spoiler alert, you can't. And the understanding that he's with you every step of the way. I remember growing up, right, in youth group when, when youth group people would date right, and all of that, because that happens in the youth group, right, we were, our, our youth leaders, our youth pastor would always say, hey, leave room for Jesus, super awkward, and I may or may not have responded, but I have him in my heart, so this is okay, as my way of saying, no, I want to do these things, we can't justify it out, God's not gonna, he's, he understands Jesus doesn't go, God doesn't go, oh, I didn't know Jim was going to say that. And I know there are a lot of parts of my testimony, my life, where all, I think what Jesus is doing is the hand and face emoji. I get it. 
but he's shown me that and says, hey, grow from this. He puts people in my life. I remember when internet filters became a thing and I was a sophomore in high school and part of my journey was to find areas of the internet I probably shouldn't be and I would get access denied, right? Because that was the, or like, eh. And it was like, okay, I'm gonna try to fly past this one. And I remember one night after youth group, and this, you guys, a lot of you have met my dad. He didn't come into parent. He came into disciple because I was about ready to start high school and my sister was already in high school. No one was home and it was very strange because I was like, this is Sunday night. Why isn't anybody home? I have a little brother that has to go to bed. And I, he's down by my room in the basement. And every time the computer went, eh, access denied, he made a copy of it and he printed it out. And there was this little mini phone book of access denied, and all he said to me was, you've been in places you shouldn't be. We gotta talk about this. Oh, believe me, I was grounded. Yeah, there's a definitely grounding part of that story. I don't think I was able to touch a computer for six months. But it was understanding that we have to correct this behavior. Because if you go off now, as a sophomore in high school, and you go, let's say, five years, you're gonna be here. And his worry is that that place on the internet was going to become second nature to me. And he knew that can't be the case. And maybe that's your story. Whatever your internet filter is, maybe God is trying to get you to understand that you keep going and trying to do that thing. God is going to give you those messages, those eh, access denied. And a mature believer takes that and says, all right, I'll stop. But the immature believer says, nope, I'm going to try to go right around it. Maybe if I spell it this way, we're going to try to justify sin. And that is a foolishness. That's not a maturity in Christ. So God's discipline, not only does it strengthen, it exposes and that hurts. When our sin is exposed, right, when that wound of sin is exposed, it doesn't feel good. We want to get rid of it. So we need to accept the Lord's discipline. We need to correct that error in our life. We need to be held accountable for those things. Because the final thing that discipline, the end game, I believe, of discipline is that discipline emboldens. I had a different word for that. You can put the, the slide up. And, and Mike helped me and found a, a way better word for this. That discipline emboldens. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, for you have come to the... You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That we are emboldened. That when we are disciplined, not only do we, are we strengthened by the Lord's discipline because it's exposed what is going on in our life and saying, if you keep following this, not only are you a fool, but you're not going to get anything from it. 
This does, you're not going to add this to your life. This is going to bring you spiritual death. The word I had was reverent fearlessness. But I think emboldened makes it so much better. That we know and we are emboldened that we come to the Mount of Zion. We come to the city of Jerusalem, which is now Christ. And we lay down our sins in a, a, a beginning person of faith, a new believer's faith, isn't tied up with if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. They don't realize that yet. But it's the seasoned person of faith, the mature believer, as Hebrews says, understands and recognizes that when we confess our faith, he is faithful and just. The new believer may think, if I confess my faith, not only are you going to be disciplined, God's going to be done with me. I liken that to maybe when you were dating, right? And you didn't want to bring out your inner crazy or whatever it was because you wanted that person to like you for the version of the person you wanted to give them. But the relationship takes a whole new turn when you feel like you can be yourself. When you don't feel like the date mask has to be put on. When they see you, really see you in the good, the bad, and the ugly. How do I know? I, not that I've ever been on a dating site because those weren't a thing when Carrie and I got engaged and got married. But I hear stories of people on dating sites. And there's a myriad of them. I'm not going to say them because I'll probably say the wrong one and you all think of me very differently. But what do people put on? Do they put all of their failures on there? Come date me because I keep trying to find those places on the internet. I keep traveling 80 down school zones. I keep doing all of these things. Please date me. No. And what person is going to be like, oh, yeah, give me some of that? No. Unless they're like, ooh, they're a project. I'm going to fix them. Danger. Do not go. Do not collect $200. Don't do that. People put what they think those people want to see, right? If you're on some kind of fitness uh, dating app, you're not going to, the first thing you're going to say is, I'm a couch potato. I love chili, and I hate working out. Oh, Pastor, why do you got to throw chili under the bus? I don't know. I don't know why that came into my, are we having chili today? I don't know why. I, I have chili in my head, but to me, couch potatoes eat chili. You're welcome. But understand, like, we're going to try to put our best foot forward in those dating apps, I assume. Yeah, I, I went, I, I tried out for a triathlon. Didn't finish, but I did it, right? I go to the gym all the time. I go to the snack bar, but I go to the gym all the time. We try to put our best foot forward. The immature person tries to do that with God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Don't be a failure in your faith. Don't try to be what, people, what you think people want you to be. Be you. And if you are encouraged, if you are emboldened, if you are exposed and you've learned and now strengthened in the, in the, the follies of your life, lead with that because that's the power of your testimony. That's what a mature believer does. That's why Jesus is the greatest because Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to use your good and your bad and your ugly to help bring my word of the gospel to the world. 
So you may be coming here this morning and go, God can't use me because I do this. Oh, no, he can, because guess what? He already knows you do it. So as we turn and we finish this book of Hebrews with chapter 13, he's going to tie it up in a nice bow, but I think the ending is really here. That if Jesus is the greatest thing in your life, live that out. Because so often we're tempted to live another version of that. We're tempted to say, oh, no, that's, I, I get that, and I, you know, me and Jesus, yeah, we're tight, we're BFFs. But in the world, I, I don't want to be seen like this. I, be, I want people to see the way I want them to see me. But the real believer says, this is me. This is the good, the bad, and the ugly, and Christ died for me. I think that makes a lot more sense in a fallen world. Because people are going to, wait, if Jesus can love a Jim Holland owner, I'm not nearly as bad as him. He can love me. Or it could be, if Jesus can save a Jim, he can save a me. I'm so sorry that sounded like Mario. I am so sorry for that. But it's the same holds true. That he can save you and he wants to save you. And if he has saved you, walk that out. Not your own version of it. Walk out the fact that you are saved by Jesus. In your muck, in your mire, you are saved by Jesus. Your sin has been exposed. You've been strengthened and you've been emboldened to walk that out. And he has one more encouragement for us next week. Let's pray.